0: and enjoy what's up everybody this is in liberty and health episode number 12. um i don't want to say this is necessarily going to be a different kind of episode but um we're gonna have i don't want to say a. A debate necessarily, but maybe a little bit of a friendly back and forth. Um, I'm very excited to have on former
1: Senator Eric Brakey. Eric, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. It's been a nice uh, productive day over here at Young Americans for Liberty, and it's always nice to end the day with a good conversation about freedom. Awesome. Yeah, well, that's good to hear.
0: So I am a Libertarian, As are you, but uh, we kind of have a difference of opinion on approach, but before we kind of start tackling those details, um, I was listening to plenty of your interviews and plenty of your speeches, and it seems like you have a little bit of an oppressive resume through your uh, career as a senator in Maine. Um, how did you kind of come to libertarianism and how did you end up running for Senate and uh, just kind of elaborate on some of that.
1: Yeah, I was just a grassroots Ron Paul activist. Um, I kind of had a conversion from neoconservatism back in the Tea Party wave, 2010, uh, once it finally got beaten to my head enough that these wars were not for freedom. In fact, they were very you know, anti-freedom and anti-the Constitution. And um, so that was um, <laughs> so I had a conversion in the Tea Party wave, uh, got involved with the Ron Paul movement just uh, after I got out of college. I lived in New York City was working as a professional actor and started showing up to this group of Ron Paul supporters called the New York city Liberty HQ just started showing up to debate, watch parties. And somehow they roped me into helping out with different um, volunteer activities. And before I knew it, I was running the whole operation there. And Mm -hmm. then I got a job offer from the Ron Paul campaign. Uh, I moved to Maine where my family's gone back for about 10 generations Uh, uh, eventually went from a field staffer to the state director. Maine was one of the few states in 2012 that we won uh, though. I guess that was somewhat contested at the national convention (laughs) for those who followed all the drama back in 2012. That's going on Mm -hmm. almost a decade ago. Now it's kind of crazy to think Mm -hmm. Um, I was uh, infamously kicked out of the national convention. They took my delegate credentials away and gave it to some Mitt Romney supporter that they handpicked. But after that was all said and done, I decided. You know, when Ron retired from Congress and it was clear he wasn't running for anything, again, people kept going to Ron and asking, uh, "What should I do? How can I make a difference for liberty?" And Ron, really not being a central planner, told people, "I don't know. You got to figure that out for yourself. Go out and do something. There's 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 a lot of ways to make a difference for liberty, and you go figure it out." And so a lot of us did. My Path happened to be i saw that you know we already had one or two good people elected to our state legislature in maine and i thought you know maybe that's a path to try to make a real practical difference so i started an org to help liberty candidates get elected uh we were focused on the republican party because that's where all of our efforts in the ron paul movement had been up to that point um And we had moderate success that year in 2012, but I ran for state Senate myself two years later uh, in a district that people really didn't think I had much of a chance. I was uh, 26 years old on election day, and the guy I ended up beating had been in elected office for 36 years. He had never lost a race. He'd been like on the city council in the biggest city, the mayor of the biggest city, he'd been the register probate for 10 years and served 10 non-consecutive years in the state Senate. So people kind of looked at that race and thought, here's this 26-year-old kid going up against a very entrenched establishment Democrat, and they kind of you know wrote the race off. They didn't think I had a chance. Um, But really, it was with the support of the Liberty Movement. We broke state fundraising records, and we got the message out, and I went door to door talking to voters, listening to their problems and making the case to them on, you know, whatever their problems were that they were concerned about, how we could fix those problems with liberty-based solutions, not by growing government. Oftentimes we, the solution was to repeal government programs that were making the situation worse. And we won that race. Uh, it, It was a big landslide. It was a surprise upset that year, won by about 18 points uh, very few people saw it coming. I didn't even see it coming that, that big a victory. Um, went on, served in the state Senate. Um, my first year in, I was the Senate chairman for the Health and Human Services Committee. And I did a lot of work on welfare reform and medical marijuana. I also am most well-known though in the state of Maine for authoring and passing our constitutional carry law. Uh, constitutional carry has become a bit of a kind of a... Um, Commonplace in America now, it's been passed in 21 states. But at the time in 2015, Maine w- became the sixth state in the country to pass it. Uh, we actually, to this date, are the only state that passed constitutional carry through a Democrat-controlled chamber. We I, we got it passed through the Democrat-controlled House, and it was just you know following the advice of Thomas Jefferson when the. People fear the government, there is tyranny, but when the government fears the people, there is liberty. We made the politicians afraid of their constituents. We blew up their their phones and their emails with angry constituents who wanted their gun rights back and let, letting them know if they voted against it, that they would work to make sure they were out of a job. And so we got Republicans on board, including some really hesitant Republicans, and we got even some Democrats on board enough to get it through the Democrat-controlled House. And I think that that's an important lesson for anyone who wants to make a practical difference in politics, whether it's on the local level, state level, federal level, wherever. Ultimately, it's not about being friends with the politicians. You, you, you have to make them afraid of you. Uh, you can be loved and manipulated in politics or you can be feared and respected. And I'm genu- generally a nice guy. I like to be loved and you know admired and all that. We, we're all susceptible to that. But at the end of the day, what's most important is making liberty win and you know you gotta be willing to put the screws to the politicians if we want to get our freedoms back so wow. that's yeah that that's i guess that's part of the story anyway i did end up running for federal office twice and all that now i'm at young americans for liberty so i'll for for the sake of not going on too long i'll i'll just end that there no that was awesome and uh yeah when i was listening to all your talks
0: i was thoroughly impressed because, you know, I don't think anybody would necessarily think that someone 26 years old, no less. Um, I just turned 27 last weekend. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. I. It, it's weird. It feels a couple of days older than twenty six, but uh, you know,
1: it's uh, yeah. Feels once you get to thirty, different. it's all downhill from there. I don't know how much longer I'll. I'm thirty three now. I don't know right. how much longer I'll be able to call myself a young American for Liberty.
0: <laughs> yeah, I heard you and Spike had a little bit of a back and forth about that. I, I believe
1: he said he was a uh, middle aged American for Liberty. <laughs> so uh, you're... Yeah, I think I think we decided once once you meet the constitutional mm. age requirements to run for president, <laughs> you probably can't call yourself a young American anymore.
0: Uh, okay, well, I you know you are a senior spokesperson at Young Americans for Liberty, so you know perhaps <laughs> <Yeah>. that's fitting. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, you know I think a lot of people don't realize the impact that they can have locally, and you know your story is a perfect example of that. That if you get enough people rallied together and you let you know the establishment know, as we all should, especially after this last year, that um we're not going to tolerate you taking away our rights. We're not going to tolerate. Yeah our basic liberties being stolen then you know we're going to find people who are going to do you know what we put you there to do and i've talked about this with the other people that i've had on my podcast is that it's very important that if we're not holding our elected officials accountable that you know we're on top of that and you know if they're not going to be accountable to the people that elected them then we put people who will be so you know i'm very glad to hear that there's a lot of republicans and libertarians that got elected over this last midterm but you know, if these people aren't going to be subject to the people that um, you know elected them, then hey, you guys got to go. You know, now's not the time to yeah. kind of dilly dally around. You know, we're looking at thirty right. trillion dollars in debt, um, the Biden administration pushing vaccine mandates, and a lot of other issues that are very, very important to people. And it seems like there are some people in some places that aren't addressing this. as, yeah, I think a lot of people
1: should. Yeah, certainly, and you know, at the end of the day. Oh, where you said something that got my brain going, and now I'm I'm forgetting where I was going. But yeah, at, at, at the end of the day, uh, oh yes, there's an important mm-hmm. principle that you know Morton Blackwell at the Leadership Institute has taught for, for for many years, which is we have this. We oftentimes have this mistaken vision that the way we get the policies we want passed is we've got to get all the right people elected. Mm-hmm. You know, all the people who believe what we believe. We got to have a majority of libertarians elected to the state legislatures and the Congress to get those bodies to do what we want. And uh, we can stand around hoping for that day for a long time. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's never going to happen. We can, however, get a a few good people on the inside to sponsor the bills, to get the roll call votes, to enable the rest of us on the outside to hold them accountable for those votes. And if we want to create a more libertarian america if we want to have a free america it's it's not going to be we get all you know libertarian congressmen elected it's going to be we have to shape the political environment around the politicians so that it is politically expedient for the wrong people to do the right thing because politics attracts corrupt <laughs> self-interested people but mm-hmm. if those corrupt Self interested people are acting in their own interest to get our freedoms back because that's how they're going to keep their job. Then at the end of the day, that's just as good,
0: yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. And honestly, I've never heard it put that way or ever even necessarily thought about it that way. But I think it's a very, very good point that you know, tomorrow we're not going to have Rand Paul in every seat of the Senate <laughs> as much as it would we would be nice, like that. yeah. It would, it be, would nice. be nice, <laughs> but um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, so what got you involved with Young Americans for Liberty? Were you always a part of that or did you kind of get involved with it recently?
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess I've kind of been on a parallel way with Young Americans for Liberty for a long time. I, I actually was never, I wasn't a member of Young Americans for Liberty when I was a college student. I graduated in 2010. Young Americans for Liberty really got started in 2007, 2008, it began as students for Ron Paul, And after the 2008 campaign, it became Young Americans for Liberty to continue with that youth revolution that was part of the Ron Paul revolution. That was really a lot of the energy behind the Ron Paul revolution. And um, uh, for the longest time, Young Americans for Liberty has been pretty much exclusively working on college campuses uh, and doing great campus work. And we still do great campus work. Um, But in uh, but in like 2016 the idea kind of came about you know we've got this youth army donald trump is in the white house so we can't really you know plan on we don't really have the same avenue to build the movement on a presidential run because i mean what were we going to do like run rand paul against donald trump in a primary like that wouldn't mm-hmm. work out very well for anyone it'd be All a waste right. of resources and it would probably so in, instead, what was looked at was this model of the state legislatures. Now, I had been in the state. So I'd been in the state Senate, uh, got elected in 14, served to two terms until 2018 when I gave it up to run for the U.S. Senate. And uh, I'd been I'd attended Young Americans for Liberty conventions. I, I kept seeing new and new waves of young people through the campus programs at Young Americans for Liberty coming to the Ron Paul Liberty Movement years after Ron had run for president. I was always amazed to see the, the Liberty Movement continuing to grow because of this fantastic organization. And um, when I ran for the United States Senate in 2018, uh, some folks had this idea of you know mobilizing, with, with, Rand Paul had a super PAC that um, Paid a lot of these young Americans for Liberty to go door to door in support of my campaign, and from that, some of the um, uh, kind of infrastructure was was built, or the the idea was created for this new program that was really started in full force in 2000. Um, well, later that year, um, called Operation Win at the Door, in which Young Americans for Liberty recognized this model of electing liberty state legislators has worked in, you know, it wasn't just me, you know, there were maybe a good handful, maybe I could say from being generous, maybe as many as 10 really principled Ron Paul style liberty legislators who'd been elected across the country at that point in time on their own individual efforts. But there was no institution, there was no network, there was no way to kind of really replicate that model across mm-hmm. the country until Young Americans for Liberty came along with Operation Win at the Door. We have been, as an organization, identifying, recruiting candidates, really vetting them very thoroughly Mm -hmm. through extensive surveys and interviews. And then when we get them elected, we hold them accountable and we've kicked a few out of the coalition and we intend to primary some of them if they have fallen to the dark side, which happens. You gotta hold people accountable, even the best of us. Um, But I got involved after, in a formal capacity, I. You know, spoken at many YAL conventions, and I had an informal relationship with Young Americans for Liberty for a long time. But I got formally involved after my congressional campaign ended last uh, last. What was how how long now? (laughs) It was all of the COVID era is just like one big blur. Yeah. Um, But in two thousand and that would have been two thousand and twenty. So last last uh, last year. So I've been here for Mm -hmm. a little over a year now. Uh, I got on board. To help fundraise for the door-to-door efforts for you know last last year's cycle in which we had huge victories, we now have almost 180 liberty legislators now mm-hmm. elected in uh, in 37 states, and this is after our activists knocked on two million doors across the country to make this happen. Um, and I went from there to helping uh, coach and mentor some of these new legislators. And now I'm working as the senior spokesperson for the organization, uh, helping to get the word out about all the good work that we're doing. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. And I was just on your website, um, kind of preparing some of the show notes.
0: And I did see, I believe it said 179 people elected. Um, If I remember correctly, didn't you help actually some libertarians get elected as well?
1: Yeah. So I I will say Young Americans for Liberty is a nonpartisan organization. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we when we identify the candidates that we support and we have our activists knock doors for we um, only ask two questions are they principled and do they have a path to victory and we have seen libertarian party candidates who are principled and we thought had a path to victory Mm -hmm. turns out only one of them has gotten elected Uh, Mm -hmm. that's Marshall Burt in Wyoming who uh, was fortunate enough there was no Republican in the race so he had a straight Head to head race with a Democrat and it worked mm-hmm. out very well for him. We, we do like to point out because I know that sometimes some folks in the LP look at Young Americans for Liberty and say, well, you get all these Republicans elected. What are you doing for the LP? Right. We do like to brag that as far as state legislative elections go, we have spent more financial resources helping Mm-hmm. libertarian party candidates get elected than any other organization in the country including the libertarian party. So we're we're pretty proud proud of that. We we don't discriminate. I advocate I think mm-hmm. the most effective path in most cases is to run GOP for a whole number of strategic reasons. But ultimately at the end of the day, that's about st- tactics and strategy. It's about um it's about using the most the best vehicle available to you to get elected. It's not about Oh, you know, the GOP, the, the people of the GOP or the ideas of the GOP are so much better than the LP. No, no, this isn't mm-hmm. an idea, ideological dispute. This is all about right. tacti- tactics and strategy. Right. And I remember
0: you saying that in a different interview, and I, I think a lot of libertarians should come to appreciate that. And there is a large stigma among some libertarians that I could even say that at one point I was kind of in a similar boat where you say, oh, well, they're GOP, so, uh, you know, the hell with them. But um, this kind of gets to another point that I wanted to kind of have a little bit of a back and forth with you about. Um, What are some of the younger Republicans that you're meeting and coming to these meetings kind of like? Because I work in a blue collar field, right? I'm an automotive technician. Mm. And a lot of the guys I work with are typically boomer cons. (laughs) And uh, mm-hmm. some of the younger guys, you know, are kind of of the same mentality, but I would even go as far to say as neocons, where these guys are still for all the wars. And I, I understand not criticizing your guy, but they're pretty good or... Um, pretty lackluster when it comes to criticizing trump on the areas where he failed which i felt he failed on the second amendment by banning bump stocks he failed on being a financial conservative by spending outrageous amounts of money especially after this last year and he failed as a anti-war candidate because he campaigned as an anti-war candidate but in effect he was essentially pro-war i would say by escalating drone strikes putting more troops on the ground in um somalia amongst other things um so sorry to go on a little bit of a tangent there, Yeah, but um, well, it's, your, it's your show. So, <laughs> oh yeah, but I, I, I'm i more of one <laughs> yeah. your opinion on yeah. how kind of things are going. So um, I guess my question is, you know, what do the younger Republicans and, you know, Republican libertarians look like that are coming to you? Um, do these people seem more Ron Paul or more Donald Trump esque kind of, uh, well, you know?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I would say that, I mean, everyone at Young American's, for Liberty and our activists who get involved in young Americans for Liberty know that this is Ron Paul's student group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if they want Donald Trump's student group, they can go join turning point and we have a good relationship with turning point, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, this is Ron Paul's student group. We are mm-hmm. built on that philosophy of, of Liberty. And I will say, uh, you know, as far as new young people, Coming to Young Americans for Liberty. I mean, we just uh, celebrated the completion of what we call Project 1776, Mm -hmm. where we wanted to sign up 100,000 new students on college campuses across the country, and uh, so we've signed up. We we signed up over 100,000 this year, Mm -hmm. and the biggest thing that's bringing people to uh, young people to the organization is the crazy policies on college campuses around COVID. So it's the mask mandates, it's the vaccine mandates. It's the fact that Young Americans for Liberty as a principal first organization was the only real student group kind of standing out there from the very beginning. And I think to this very day, I haven't seen the other student groups really fighting against these mask and vaccine mandates. Um, we, uh, Our st- activists have been fighting that. Students on college campuses who recognize the craziness of this Mm -hmm. are coming to uh the liberty movement because of that. Now, of course, you get people in on one issue and you then you explain to them the broader principles and Mm -hmm. you hope to kind of bring them into the the broader the broader liberty movement. Um uh, it's always I, I love seeing when some you know 19 year old kid who's in college right now got involved because of a a mask mandate fight and now they're reading ron paul's the revolution a manifesto Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's what i like to see they come in for one issue and then they get the broader philosophy and hopefully they stay and they continue and they continue doing great things throughout their their whole life um i will say you know just just on the uh donald trump stuff i will say sure I agree with you for for the most part on what you what you what you said there about Donald Trump, okay. bump st- like the bump stock ban, like yeah, that was like I've always viewed Donald Trump as I think from kind of a libertarian perspective, mm-hmm. like could look at the glass as half empty or the glass is half full. Mm-hmm. I I I guess working a Republican strategy, I chose to really look at the glass half full aspect, especially sure. as I was running for, uh, you know. Uh, Congressional nomination, all that. Um, But obviously, yeah, he was a huge spender. Mm -hmm. The bump stock ban, you know, has had the danger of setting a terrible precedent that could be used by future administrations to go after much more than just bump stocks. Mm -hmm. And I would push back a little bit on the war, I, I would say, on the war issue, Trump was all over the place. He didn't seem to have mm-hmm. a coherent philosophy. He had some good instincts on occasion and right. he had some right, like Rand Paul and Tucker Carlson pulling him mm-hmm. uh, away from the the Liz Cheney's and the the John Boltons and the uh, Lindsey Grahams. Um, I think do think that Trump deserves some credit on two things okay. when it comes to war. Sure. I think he deserves credit on um, changing the... Even if his actions didn't always match his rhetoric, the fact that he was rhetorically calling out the military- industrial complex, mm-hmm. calling out the failures of the wars in the Middle East, blaming them of course on Obama and Bush he had his mm-hmm. own part to play I mean he didn't he didn't do what he should have to end the war in Yemen and he right. didn't start any new wars, but he certainly did Correct. continue some of the yeah. wars that were in place. He didn't seem to know how or You could, I guess you could interpret it also as he wasn't that committed to actually ending the wars. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was just lip service, but he didn't start any new wars. And there were some real, we could be at war in Iran right now. Right. I mean, we pretty much walked up to the line. Mm -hmm. They had it all set to go. Donald Trump just needed to sign off on it. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, with Rand Paul and Tucker Carlson in his ear, he said, this actually seems like a really bad idea. Well, and I, I I think I'm he sorry. deserves credit. For, so, no, no, mm-hmm. it's okay. So he deserves credit for that, and he deserves mm-hmm. credit for at least I think changing the narrative with a lot of base conservatives who were rabid pro George W. Bush, pro war in Iraq folks. Who I, I know so many mm-hmm. base voter conservatives, Republican Party base voters now, who say, yeah, those wars were a terrible idea, and we shouldn't repeat that. And that is a huge victory. In terms of, yeah, it's just talk for right now, Mm -hmm. but it allows us to continue building upon an anti-war message in the Republican Party, which coming from the days of George W. Bush and the neoconservatives just dominating the entire GOP. It is so amazing to see that changing and to potentially see Liz Cheney get drummed out of Congress.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? I would agree with most of those points. Um. I, I guess the only thing I would deliver a little pushback on is that he definitely could have been better on Iran. And same with Rand Paul, because they were pretty firm against the Iran deal. But to their credit, like you said, we could I be think,
1: at. Oh. Yeah. 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 Trump really screwed. did screw that up. I think mm. Rand was playing politics a little bit because he was all like, well, okay. okay. I think he felt like the bit he couldn't back in the 2016 primary I think he felt like he couldn't embrace the Iran deal because it was so toxic in the GOP yeah it was Uh, tied to
0: Obama and to Obama's credit that was actually one good anti-war thing that Obama did despite campaigning as an anti-war candidate he was the furthest thing from it but once again to his credit that was something good but then you know that comes with politics where anybody right. to the right is going to say, well, we can't do this because we can't give Obama credit. And, you know, now you see this yeah. kind of folding out with, um, the whole Afghanistan deal where if the Afghanistan pullout would have fell apart on Trump's watch and everybody would have blamed it on Trump. And it's the right thing to do. Everybody knows the right, it was the right thing to do. And I think Trump probably would have handled right. it better, but Biden wanted to claim credit for it. So he said, all right, well, let's kick the can down the road and I'll be the one to take credit for it which, okay, you can look at it one of two ways. They negotiated it and they got out, which they should have, and it fell apart, so we should never leave. Well, that's the wrong way, but then the right way is, okay, well, we should have left, he messed it up, but we got out. That was hugely, hugely important, but it looks bad on a Democrat, which I hate to play politics with it, but you know this shows, hey, Biden's incompetent, you know democrats can't do anything right so i think this could be a big selling point for republicans and libertarians going forward that hey look he botched this elect us we won't botch it which is completely political but you know i believe that if you had somebody capable they could do and and the wars better than that i mean it's there are so many better ways to go about it and that's a whole nother conversation of itself but um yeah
1: <laughs> yeah you know, it, it is interesting, I, I and I kind of wrestled with the dynamics of all this while it was going on, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I was obviously very happy to see us get out of Afghanistan. Uh, I, of course, would have loved to have seen it done in a more deliberate fashion, mm-hmm. but it's also, I mean, it was just such a slow-rolling disaster for so long, it's just kind of right. like, Makes you wonder if it could have been done any better. I mean, Biden, Biden. I think moving the the withdrawal date back into the middle of Afghan fighting season was mm-hmm. a bad move. Right. Um, but ultimately, I, I think that Biden took a lot of blame for what was really the Pentagon's fault. Um, okay. I, I I suspect that, and you like, know, I, I remember hearing a gentleman who was on the Scott Horton show talking about this. And you've got this guy Joe Kent, who's running for Congress somewhere, who's talking about this too. Um, so when Trump negotiated the peace deal with the Taliban mm-hmm. and said we're getting out of Afghanistan, um, there are many who have indicated that the Pentagon's position was we're going to wait him out. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wait him out. We're gonna wait through the. We're not going to take action on this. We're not going to start to draw down, and um and they did that and biden came in and biden was kind of in a um was kind of backed into a corner in some regard and that it's either you know things have gotten to the point the taliban was gaining in steam we would either have had to get out or we would have had to had a huge troop surge into afghanistan which was already so, so unpopular so maintaining the status quo was not really an option for biden mm-hmm. and so he chose to get out but i think From what I from what I've heard, there was a degree to which some in the Pentagon wanted to try to slow roll that and kind of back Biden into another corner where it's like at a certain point, it's like, hey, we're so unprepared for this withdrawal. I guess we can't follow through and do it. And the war, Mm -hmm. the forever war in Afghanistan has to continue. Uh, And I guess Biden, to his credit, we still withdrew, but it was Mm -hmm. a disaster. And obviously the planning an execution of that withdrawal for whatever reason, whether it was Pentagon incompetence or, or, um, or actual just undermining the policy of withdrawal until the very end, uh, we see the disaster that has happened there, and now we still have hundreds of Americans left behind mm-hmm. and billions of dollars of military equipment in the hands of the Taliban. So it's certainly um, it's a it's a mess. Right. Well, to kind of put an optimistic note to that too. Um, you mentioned scott
0: horton and i listened to his show religiously and um a lot of the intelligence and uh, people that he talks to essentially said they're not going to be able to maintain the uh military equipment that we left them which yep. still is no excuse to leave it obviously <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't arm the enemy purposefully which i don't want yeah. to say they necessarily did it purposefully but it was clear negligence on their part um oh, damn i forgot the other point i was going to Uh, But, uh, you know, I guess kind of moving forward to another issue that I see with the GOP right now, and I've heard a lot of talk about this, is China. (laughs) The big kind of um, scare tactic right now with the GOP is China, and I'm sure that your take is going to be better than a lot of people, but I feel like that's quite a bit of baggage that um, a lot of the GOP is carrying with it right now, and Trump was very very bad on this because china is pretty much a ponzi scheme they're the only bigger house or house of cards in the world than us you know they spend 250 percent of their gdp or of what they take in taxes i'm sorry and um you know it still i believe it's 30 percent of their um agriculture is de- being done by hand so you know it's like one good swift blow wind and their whole economy comes collapsing it's not too far off from ours ours is a little bit more stable but, um, you know, we also maintain a huge trade deficit with China, which Trump campaigned on fixing, but ultimately failed. He did worse than Obama. And then, of course, <laughs> Biden sets a uh, new record trade deficits. I believe uh, last month was ninety six point four billion dollars. Um, you know, do you see a way to kind of combat that in the GOP and kind of get them to back down from this China hawkishness or, um, you know, kind of what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I, you know, I think there's actually a lot of historical comparisons to be made between it's kind of like this Russia, China binary. One of them has to be the boogeyman that we've got to be afraid of. And we've got to, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, it's the new, is the new like evil empire. We've got mm-hmm. to, I mean, it's kind of funny. One of them is the old evil empire. We were supposed <laughs> to be afraid of, uh, now we, they want to make us afraid of it again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think it's it reminds me a little bit of early in the, uh, Early in American history, after you know the Revolution, how uh, kind of France and the and and Britain were mm-hmm. kind of like these. Um, it was like these were the two powers that the two parties were. You know, if you. If you wanted to be more aligned with France and you thought France should be our partner and the, and and Britain was the enemy, then you voted for Thomas Jefferson's party. But mm-hmm. if you thought that you know, um, if you thought that France was the enemy and 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 the and Britain should be our our best friend in the world, you voted for John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And it's kind of like it is kind of weird how we we need this like we always seem to need this great other enemy out mm-hmm. there for people to be afraid of to mobilize against and try to you know develop some kind of tribal identity uh, uh, um, uh, by who who we're opposed to um yeah I mean that is, I, I certainly think uh, the the I, I would say on the one hand I think the anti-china stuff makes at least somewhat more sense than the anti-russia stuff Um I think that economically, China ha- has more to potentially be concerned about than, than Russia. I think Russia is just kind of an old boogeyman. They're trying to drum up again. But but you're right at the same time, th- at least from what I read, the, the ultimate fundamentals of the Chinese economy are not what many would have us believe that they are. Uh, the fact that they are trying to. You know, now that we're out of Afghanistan, the big fear that they're telling us, oh, now China wants to move into Afghanistan. They want to do this Belt and Road initiative. They're going to build a giant superhighway and, you know, and resurrect the old Silk Road, you know, to connect to European markets for all their goods. Um, And I think this was on the Scott Horton Show. I heard someone point out, you know, this is really a a sign of desperation from China because their centrally planned economy has resulted in such a glut of goods that they don't have markets to sell into it is so much cheaper to ship goods over you know by sea than by land and the fact that they are looking for building this big land route that's going to have to go through so many different countries they're going to have to pay off so many different uh local you know political corrupt officials in order to 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 do this and then of course talking about going through afghanistan where it's like there's all these warring tribes like I, good luck securing that superhighway. I mean that uh, we can't, you can't get oil pipelines built without people like blowing stuff up all the time over there. So um, yeah, it I, yeah. I, I I mean, what's the answer for the Republican Party? Are they gonna you know back off the the China hawkishness? Um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what to do about that. Other than mm. just try to um, uh, just just try to advocate and remind conservatives that we believe markets work. And we should remember that, you know, when everyone thought the Soviet union was going to be dominating us, you know, forever, you know, economically, that was the moment when they were actually at their weakest and about to collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, I mean, it's, it's like the same thing we we, we, it's like these GDP numbers that, that we rely on you know, when you measure economic growth, just based on what is being spent, uh, and the spending is being done so much (laughs) by the government, rather Mm. than consumers in a free marketplace, that's actually not a really good measure of the economy and how it's actually doing. um, Because the spending is not necessarily correlated with people's lives being improved. So the Soviet Union had a nice big gdp but they were mm-hmm. spending it all on you know creating bricks but people didn't need bricks because mm-hmm. they couldn't coordinate the uh, you know uh, bec- through under central planning and so i i i would imagine we'll probably look back in history and say that china had a similar problem and perhaps america is going to have a similar problem as yeah. <laughs> we become an increasingly centrally planned economy mm-hmm. under the the biden regime so um you know I. Uh, I guess we just need to remind conservatives that markets prevail if we, if you know, and if we should embrace free markets over here. And if we really want to be anti China, then let's beat them by embracing freedom, not central planning. Okay.
0: I couldn't have actually asked for a better answer. Um, That was fantastic. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, We need to free up our economy so that way we can start having trade surpluses like we once had back in, you know, the early 1900s up until, you know, around the 80s or 90s, I believe it was. Um, You know, we used to be a net exporter. Now we're a net importer. All we do is import stuff. That's Mm. why we have this uh, huge ship crisis right now is because we have these large trade deficits. All these ships come over Mm. with imported goods, specifically from China. And then we send the ships back completely empty because, you know, we send them worthless paper and then they send us goods. That are half-assed.
1: So on a on a certain on a certain sense, that does kind of sound like we're getting the good end of the deal. We're giving them worthless paper, and we get like all this, uh, yeah. all this you know, all this cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's there's um, obviously we do want to, uh, uh, you know, have more manufacturing and 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 uh, blue collar jobs here in America, and 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 the way to do that is not slapping tariffs and trying to be protectionist, but like, you know finding ways to have more affordable energy and to lower the tax burden and the regulatory burden. I mean, you know, we, we don't want people just like polluting the land. I mean, that's what they're doing in China. They're, they're the biggest pollute, one of some of the biggest polluters in the world. Um, So we can, you know, protect, but one of the things that is kind of crazy to me that China is getting ahead of us on is nuclear power. I mean, they just unveiled in the Gobi desert, this experimental thorium nuclear reactor, which is safer, cleaner, cheaper than the uranium-based light water reactors we commonly think of uh, when we think of nuclear energy, and this is an American technology that was developed, you know, like half a century ago. That because of federal regulations, we haven't been able to develop and do anything with. Um, I actually got it in the Republican Party platform in 2016. We should be exploring thorium nuclear power. And China's China's beaten us to the uh, to the punch because we are. Uh, Instead, we're chasing after windmills, which will never, Mm -hmm. which will never. um, First, they're not clean, right? uh, And uh, despite what people say, and Mm -hmm. um, they'll never power an industrial economy. So, um, I'm sure you know who Alex Epstein is, right? Um, I, I a little bit. I know him by name. I, I, I don't you might but I I I know he's a writer and he does some political writing but I don't I am not he does uh, stuff he, he's been on Tom Wood's show a couple of times but he um okay then I've probably heard him
0: he focuses a lot on the uh, fossil fuel debate and obviously that's a very important uh kind ah, of deal to okay. me yeah I know who you're talking about now because of uh you know my industry I work on cars um mm-hmm. but yeah that I actually didn't know that they establish a uh, nuclear kind of technology over there. But, you know, one thing that we could do at home, we have the shale Bed that spans across a lot of the um, northeastern part of the United States. And there's so many technologies that actually make fracking relatively safe. They have fluids that go to the top of the water rather than sink to the bottom of the water. So that way, if there were to be any leaks, it doesn't get into the drinking water. Mm. And I think that's a great way to bring jobs back. And I know it's a little bit of a tangent and relevant
1: point, but... um, No, it, it, it is. It, I mean, this is... And just to go down that tangent just a little bit bit more this is the great irony right trump pulled america out of the paris climate accord all of the environmentalists were up in arms this means we're going to have greenhouse gases and we're going to keep polluting the environment and yet after he pulled us out of the paris climate accord greenhouse gas emissions in america saw one of their biggest drops in history and it wasn't because of any government policy it was because of natural gas it was because natural gas uh, is as a is a bridge fuel. It is not totally clean, but it is cleaner than coal and cleaner than oil. And it, you know it it is a great substitution for them, especially if you want a cleaner environment. So <laughs> it is amazing to me that so much of the green New Deal movement, who claims to be so afraid of you know carbon emissions, they stand in the way of natural gas. They stand in the way of nuclear power, and they are the ones who are really kind of keeping us stuck in this oil coal system because they will not accept anything that bridges us towards Mm -hmm. a cleaner future. They want wind, solar is going to power us now, and it just doesn't, you look at the technology where it is, you look at the economics of it, it, it's not functional.
0: Okay, so that I, I'm glad you brought up the wind and solar at the end there, because that reminded me of the reason why I brought up Alex Epstein is because um, over in Germany, people are actually paying more for power, because they have so much solar and wind, and it's such an inefficient source of energy that they have to use much more fossil fuels, which raises their costs to actually power all their uh, power grids. So mm. it, it's funny that they push for all this green energy. But, you know, it, it's not a feasible technology, which right. I'm all for electric vehicles, I'm yeah. all for renewables, but we have to do these things efficiently and we have right. to do them in a manner that's going to be you know sufficient that to yeah. replace our current power.
1: Right. And, and this is the thing to understand about why these technologies don't work. It's because of two qualities of them It's that they are both intermittent and non dispatchable. So intermittent just means that it can't run continuously. So. know the wind isn't always blowing and the sun isn't always shining and then non-dispatchable means that it it, we we don't get to choose when it is on (laughs) you know the wind and the the sun go on their own time and so and and because we don't really have the uh, you know affordable and efficient battery technology to store energy we have to use it as it is generated and so if the wind is blowing in the middle of the night and you get all this wind power onto the grid, you're actually creating a problem if there aren't enough people around who want to use this wind power. And so you actually have times when uh, the, you you have to pay people to use electricity so that you don't have all these just chaos on the grid. Ironically, for all of the, um, for, uh, you know, for all of the grief that like Bitcoin miners get, Bitcoin mining is per- perhaps the only industry I can think of that is a fully uh, dispatchable, like um, consumer of energy. Like mm-hmm. they can, you can turn these Bitcoin mining rigs like on and off on a moment's notice. So it actually is one of the few things out there that is a good pairing for wind and solar. Um, but, but of course, the green movement says that this, this, the Bitcoin miners use too much energy and they want to shut them down, too, when they are actually the only lifeline out there for a lot of these wind and solar uh, energy producers that can actually make the, 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 um, uh, these energy generators profitable. So anyway, that's, that's a whole rabbit hole that we, we just went down there. But I've been um, – uh, the, the dynamics of energy policy in the country, I think, are, are often – really simplified in Mm -hmm. in the in the debate no i agree completely and i i I didn't plan on talking
0: about this during the show but this is something that i care a lot about and i try to keep up on as much as i possibly can obviously there's just so much other stuff going on that sometimes it's hard to kind of keep up with all of it but um i guess since we're on the topic of energy and kind of going down this rabbit hole um how much do you know about regenerative agriculture not a whole lot. You'll have to really? tell me about it. Okay. So basically what this does is it actually becomes carbon, um, a net carbon negative. So they raise cows, right? In a regenerative fashion where they get all these cows to go in a field and they do, um, they basically graze them in certain parts of the field. And then when they defecate and, you know, do whatever functions on that part of the grassland, they leave it, the grass, um, you know, regenerates and it actually sinks um, emissions back into the soil. And that's a very, very simple way of putting it. But um, it, you actually create better meat because you get, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished product, which is, you know, obviously kind of held as the king of meat, at least over here in Australia, they pay more for grain-fed because it's more marbled. But um, this is something that I've been very passionate about. And I know Thomas Massey has kind of introduced some legislation around yeah. this too. But um, I really think if they were about, you know, reducing carbon emissions, um, I heard it said once by a regenerative rancher, I think they said, you could reduce all man-made climate change if you got 40% of all farms in the U.S. to regenerative agriculture. And I don't know how true that is. I don't know what they did to, um, you know, justify so the, that.
1: This this is what, like, Joel Salatin in, uh, yeah, in yeah, Kentucky yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw him. Actually, I saw him a few years back in a debate oh, cool. with uh, yeah uh he had a de- was at freedom fest he had a debate with um uh ceo of whole foods oh um oh i can't remember john Mackey. <laughs> john yeah. Mackey. that's right uh-huh. they were i guess they were having a debate over over uh mm-hmm. over uh vegetarianism or veganism or something obviously joel salatin isn't was not on the side of <laughs> veganism yeah. and vegetarianism anyway the small so anyway that, that's kind of besides the point yeah but um Anyway, no, he's a cool, he's a cool dude, and, and the work mm-hmm. that he's doing there, I think, is a really interesting model that um, I would imagine would be adopted more in the country if we did not have you – know, I, I think people often don't realize just how centrally planned our food system is right, uh, through the right. USDA, uh, how how much flows into the food system in terms of subsidies. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about – I always think about all the – like in New York City, they, you know, the, the, they want to put taxes on soda and like sugary drinks. And it's like they want to discourage people from drinking these things. And I understand this is bad for you. And people oftentimes don't realize just how bad uh, putting all these sugars into their system is. But the crazy thing is on the other side of that equation, we're subsidizing the, 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 these, uh, the production of all these sugars, like making it artificially cheap. Uh, I mean, we're still paying for it. Of course, we're paying for it with with our taxes. So it's you know the illusion of making it artificially cheap for the end consumer. And then the government has to come in on the other end of the equation and try to make it more expensive by adding taxes onto it because it's poisoning you know of people, of people's health. Um, so it's just always seemed to me the answer is obvious. Just cut the subsidies. Stop subsidizing this stuff with our taxes. And then you don't need to throw taxes on the other end and the market will work itself out. I think that it, and, and of course, I think the effect of all these subsidies into the system creates one, it creates these like massive corporate farming systems. We're not, we're not, we're not dealing with so many of the little farmers anymore. Uh, it kind of creates this consolidation of the industry. Uh, and, and it also really locks into place a lot of these really bad, unhealthy, unsustainable practices, because, because the government will always be there to, 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 uh, to, find to, to you know help make sure that that model remains profitable
0: sorry my dog's going crazy right now <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> you've right, seen no him problem. walking it out I, I see i see him running back and forth it's, yeah it's i cool. apologize um
1: but you no know apology necessary
0: the um The grass-fed, grass-finished farms, so these regenerative agriculture farms, I believe, make up about 3% of all farms in the U.S. And as I mentioned before, uh, it might have been Joel Salatin, actually, that said it, that if you switched 40% over, that you would reduce climate change almost 100%. But kind of tagging on to that is... um, uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of subsidies on grains and soy, which is typically what they feed these cows who aren't raised in that fashion. So when you get a bunch of cows, kind of in these tight feed lot operations, and um, they feed them grain and soy because it's subsidized, it's nice and cheap. Versus you know where you could just raise cows naturally, and cows live most of their lives on grasslands, anyways. But the last part of their life, they fatten them up on grain and soy, and I've heard a lot of people say that it is because of subsidies for grain and uh, soy. Now, once again, I don't know how true that is. It's not something I've dove that far into, but it makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and I could yeah, and I couldn't necessarily speak to all the intricacies and in, in, ins and outs of it, but I can certainly tell you that the government has really, uh, if you delve into our food system, it is really screwed up, and and it is government at the <laughs> at the uh the the source of it all yeah no i i agree
0: completely and it's it's kind of crazy to think that i believe all of the meat throughout the u.s is actually handled by four different manufacturers tyson cargill and i can't remember the other two but um you're not allowed to work directly with the ranchers, and I believe that was one thing that Thomas Massey was actually working on was uh, basically direct to consumer. So you can work with a rancher straight up and just buy, you know, specific cuts of meat versus where you know you have to buy a whole cow or they have to send it to a packaging plant. Um, it sounds so ridiculous to say that the government will not let you buy certain cuts or go straight to the rancher and get it. You know, if, if what's worse that happens, you get food poisoning and even if you did, you're not going to be, a, you know, that guy's not going to stay open forever because if everybody's getting sick by going to him and buying meat off him, dude's going to get shut down. No one's going to go there anymore. But right. Yeah.
1: You know, and this is why I always try to point out to um, leftists mm-hmm. who say, you know, well, you know, we need, we need regulations over, over all of these things to protect people. And I, I say, yeah, I, I believe in regulations very much. I think that the consumers do the best job of regulating the yeah. market, you know, by choosing, you know, where they're going to purchase the goods and services from. Mm-hmm. Uh, government doesn't do a good job of regulating and protecting people. Government is a, you know, corrupt institution that's often it, that is that is is subject to uh, corporate capture by special interests who end up writing the reg- uh, the government regulations mm-hmm. to benefit themselves at the expense of consumers but uh the market the market has a natural mechanism of regulation it is it is people voting with their dollars and Mm -hmm. voting for the the places that best provide what they want Uh, if they want healthy foods if they want sustainable foods then then the people can vote for that with their dollars and people when given the opportunity do but government props up these unsustainable unhealthy systems and blame and all, all its advocates are more than happy to blame the, the 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 capitalism for it when it is a a very cronyist system absolutely well i think we've been going for about an
0: hour now i th- this completely took different turns than i thought it was going to do. i had i had no idea we we're going to go down the uh, energy rabbit hole but i'm glad we did and uh you're uh Knowledge on it was uh, greatly appreciated because I didn't, like I said, I didn't expect to go down that way. And there's some stuff that I didn't know that I learned from doing this. So um, go ahead,
1: plug your shit, Eric, and uh, we'll get rocking and rolling. Yeah, sure. Um, So obviously work for Young Americans for Liberty. We make Liberty win. People can learn more about Young Americans for Liberty at YALIberty.org. You can uh, follow me on Facebook at Senator Brakey. Uh, I also have my own podcast called Free America Now, which we release five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, You can subscribe to that on all your favorite podcasting apps. We just, as you mentioned, we just released a video episode with Spike Cohen. Uh, We release a video episode once a week, but we have audio episodes five days a week on our podcasting stream. Again, that's Free America Now. Look it up, subscribe. Would love to have uh, some of the folks in your audience. Would love to uh, uh, have them a part of the daily conversation that we're having every day. Awesome. Well, actually, one more question before you go. Yeah. Um, would you ever run for office again? <laughs> yeah, I'm considering it. Probably not federal mm-hmm. office, though. Not, at least mm-hmm. not, not in the near term. I've had enough of that for a while. But uh, <laughs> but I really do believe that um, I think the state legislatures are the best political opportunity for the liberty movement today. If we can win the state legislatures, and we are, we are more and more, every election cycle, we're picking up more and more seats. Young Americans for Liberty's goal is to get to 250 liberty legislators by 2022, and we're almost at 180. I, I think we're, we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. That would control 5% of all the state legislative seats in the country. 5% may not sound like a lot, but it is when we go, when we remember that you don't need a majority, you need people on the inside willing to hold, uh, to sponsor the, the good bills, hold the politicians accountable, get the roll call votes, and let the people weigh in. And so, um, yeah, I'm considering, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've considered going back to uh, the, the state Senate in Maine. I'll have to make a decision about that in the near future. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if we can take the state legislatures, if we can take the states, not only can we combat tyranny on the state level, which we've seen plenty mm-hmm. of, Absolutely. Over the course of these last two years with with COVID and the lockdowns and the mandates and all that. But as fans of Tom Woods will know, if you've read his book, Nullification, you can do so much from the state level to combat federal tyranny as well. We have liberty legislators right now who are sponsoring defend the guard legislation who are saying to Congress – if you do not declare the wars, we will not let you take our state National Guard troops over to fight the wars. Mm-hmm. And those account for close to 50% of troops who've been serving in these in these wars, the, the state National Guards that answer to the states. There's mm-hmm. so much we can do on the state level to combat federal tyranny. Frankly, sometimes I think we can do a lot more on the state level to combat federal tyranny than you can do from that circus in Congress where everyone just fights about you know, inconsequential things, naming post offices or, you know, you know, they fight about inconsequential things. It's become a a circus, it's become the coliseum to distract Mm -hmm. us when we can take the power back by taking back the States. So I think that's, you know, I I think that is one of the best things we can invest our political efforts into. And whether I run uh, for something like that again, in the future or not um, I am all in on the state's, Strategy,
0: awesome. Well, I got to say, this was uh, probably one of my favorite shows that I've done in the few that I've done, and uh, I, I hope it was enjoyable for you as well. And yeah, uh, the, I always uh, enjoy a good conversation for sure. And uh, the you know back and forth obviously didn't get too hot. I didn't think it would. Um, Eric, you do great work. Keep it up, man. And um, you know, I'll uh, have to have you on again sometime, and we'll. Uh, talk further when you get those uh, 250
1: senators or uh, state <laughs> legislators in well <laughs> it won't be long and then we'll have to figure out what number we're going to hit after that but <laughs> hey th- thank you i really appreciate it and it's a pleasure speaking with you
0: thank you you too eric